Welcome to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. In this program, we take a fresh look at some of today's challenges from the economy, education, politics, security, defense, and much more. You'll be prompted to see and think about things just a bit differently. Now, here are your hosts, Ambassador Harry Thomas and Chief Alex Morales. Welcome to the Spotlight. I'm Ambassador Retired Harry K. Thomas, Jr. And I am Alex Morales, the Chief. Today's guest is Attorney Randy Ennis, a good friend of mine who is going to tell us about his time as an attorney, but also as a New York State Trooper and his head of global security for the National Basketball Association, which, which is where we met. Alex, unfortunately, is a big NBA fan, doesn't listen to college basketball or baseball. He's 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 uh, he's a deprived child. But uh, <laughs> but uh, Randy, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Harry and Alex, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's quite an honor to be here. Thank you for taking the time, Randy. I, we really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. So, Randy, please uh, tell our audience about you. Well, um, you know, I am originally from uh, the New York City region, uh, born in Brooklyn, reared in the Bronx. Uh, I like to say I'm a part of public school. For the needs. (laughs) I see we got quite the sportsman here. But, um, you know... uh, Grew up in New York City high schools, and uh, from there, um, um, you know, had a career in law enforcement. I'm I'm skipping a little bit, had some challenges along the way, but but from there, um, you know, uh, college and some other things, and and that's it, man. I think I had, uh, to some degree, a a, a typical... uh, regular upbringing and childhood, I'd say. Well, what made it typical and regular? Did you play sports? Did you spend time with your parents, your cousins? What what was it? Yeah, so, I mean, um, I did a lot of things that the, the typical uh, Brooklyn and Bronx kids do. Yes, they did play sports, a lot of sports, primarily basketball. Uh, very little football, uh, except for touch, and very little baseball. Um, but we were uh, extremely athletic. Uh, Harry, you, you know, in those days, there wasn't video games like there are today. And, you know, your folks were always trying to get you to come back inside. Um, uh, my parents uh, were um, immigrants uh, mm-hmm. from the Caribbean. Uh, so they were uh, first generation, uh, you know, they immigra- immigrated here. And I'm first generation born uh, here. They were from Trinidad. Okay. And, um, you know, uh, they were strict and, um, you know, we, we did what we had to do. I had uh, uh, two sisters and uh, two brothers. I had one brother that remained in the, um, in the Caribbean. Uh, and I had a brother uh, who was a couple of years older than me who I'm very close with. And we, um, you know, we were reared in the Bronx. Wow. Um you know, when you when you said your parents were strict, my backside started hurting because I know what that meant. <laughs> well, it should, man. In those days, you know, they pulled out the they pulled off the strap from the belt or whether it was a switch from a tree. They weren't worried about getting locked up. 
You know, in those oh, days. Oh, no, no. That was not a that was not a concern. In fact, any of the parents in the neighborhood could beat you, you know? And, and true that. I know. That, that, was a, that was a spare the rod, spoil the child type of uh, mentality and mindset. And, um, you know, some would say that, um, you know, some would argue to bring it back, you know? Well, my mother would have, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we all, we, all can, uh, we all can relate to that. that that's for sure. That's for sure. Hey. We're going to forgive you for being New York Knicks fans. It's okay. <laughs> Hopefully today they don't go, uh, you know, fishing. Uh, we'll see. But uh, going back to how and why did you become a New York uh, State Trooper? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. I, I, I hadn't planned to become a trooper as such. I did plan to... Uh, to be in law enforcement. My father uh, was a police officer uh, in the islands before he immigrated uh, over here. He didn't push it or anything, but he, uh, that, was, that was his career. And I have a brother uh, who passed away, God rest his soul. He was a police officer in the Caribbean. He never uh, came over to the United States in terms of residing here. He certainly visited, but um, Uh, but they, they, you know, they didn't push it. Those weren't the, the biggest influences. It was just something that was in me. And, um, you know, I, I kind of did want to help the, the, the community. But I thought I was going to be an, an NYPD officer. But uh, my brother and I, uh, uh, my brother I'm very close with, we took all of the tests, all of the civil service exams. And uh, one of them was the state police. In those days... Uh, I don't know if it's the same mindset, but in those days, um, the state police had a, a reputation. You didn't want to fool around upstate in upstate New York. We stayed in New York City because uh, if they stopped you, you had it coming. Um, but uh, I, I took the exam. I, I got called by both agencies. The state police really uh, called and recruited me first. I went there. And then the NYPD called me, but I had been in there for a few weeks, and it's a very challenging environment. Uh, between the um, the physical and the you know uh, academics, the you know, learning laws and things of that nature, and you lived at the academy from uh, Sunday to Friday. Once they um, they took a chance in me, uh, and once I got um, into that rigorous training and all that, I w I didn't feel I was going to start off anew with the NYPD when they called, so I stayed. Wow, that's fantastic. Perseverance. Well, Randy, the police have a difficult job. The last year we have seen their tactics and methods questioned, especially in relation to minority communities. How can the relations between the people and law enforcement improve? Yeah, that's a great question, Harry. That, that, and that's a very, uh, you know, very complicated question. I mean, the, the police have a difficult job. Um, but they are, um, they are uh, policing a citizenry that, that relies on them for critical and core needs. And, um, you know, we have seen, as you mentioned, um, you know, in the past year, we've seen some of the worst in police agencies, some of the, uh, the uh, you know, communities of color uh, uh, suffer at the hands of that. But, you know, I, I, I like to think, Harry, there are so many uh, opportunities uh, for the police uh, to do better. So many. Um, in terms of training, 
in terms of investment in the community. Um, you know, the, the police has to do uh, a better job at interacting with and in the communities that they police. And I think uh, I'm one of them that thinks uh, uh, a more diverse uh, police environment um, is, is certainly positive. Uh, I know there have been recruitment efforts in many of your large agencies uh, to that end, um, but it goes beyond uh, recruitment. You really have to, um, you really have to get at the core and move toward the core of getting within the psychology of who you're bringing on the job. Uh, because, um, you know, if you don't get the right people on the job or, or strive uh, to get the right types of folks on the job, uh, fundamentally, uh, you can have problems on your hand. And you have to, you, you know, as a police agency, you have to, uh, management has to take uh, strides to root out bad apples. I mean, that's, a, that's and you know, we've seen the, the, the catastrophic results in the past, well, you might say 30 years. I mean, starting with Rodney King, he was 30 years ago, just a little over, um, you know, and obviously before that, but you know, you, you've seen the, the results when that sort of uh, uh, rooting out is, is not uh, done. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, my dad was a homicide detective in Puerto Rico for 30 years, so I, I can ah. I can see what <laughs> what you're talking about, and and they they do have a a, a very difficult very difficult task. But I, I, what what kind of training you think they should have or methods they should employ to ensure that you know what happened to George Floyd, Brianna, Randy King does not happen again. Yeah, you know, I, I really think police agencies have to draw from academic communities. Uh, you know, um, you know, the, the social uh, the scientists, uh, the people who uh, historically, you know, engage in the study of man at the highest levels in terms of the psychology and the sociology, um, utilizing some of those studies and bringing in fresh, new training into police agencies uh, that's needed clearly the training that's been going on for the last uh, uh, you know there, there have been some changes but it it, it clearly is not enough uh, more in service training um, that um, that involves um, all types of areas to include Uh, you know, diversity training, you know, historically police officers will roll their eyes when that type of training comes uh, about. Uh, but uh, irrespective of them rolling their eyes, you know, if a, if a nugget or two, and it typically is, is gleaned from that training, and if they have enough exposure to uh, things they can avoid uh, and, and manners with which they can handle crisis situations better, um, Uh, that's a positive, um, and, and that is needed. You cannot stop training. You cannot stop evolving. You cannot stop getting better um, in, in, a, in a sociological environment such as a police agency. It's a very complex uh, set of, 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 of circumstances that they face every day. I have a humble opinion. Do you, as a military guy, I see that 
our police is kind of like militarized or training like a military force instead of a law enforcement. So what are your thoughts about that? Because I always say like, you know, they're, they kind of look like me. They train like me. <laughs> In a way, they're like, shooting to kill, not to, you know, to decentralize or to. Sure. So what are sure. your thoughts? Well, you know, I, I think most police agencies, certainly the state police when I went through it, you know, they're a paramilitary type of organization. So a lot of their training um, is, is uh, drawn from uh, a, the similar sort of military training. Um, and certainly in the 80s and the 90s, uh, Alex, you may have seen like in Los Angeles and some of your big agencies where um, police agencies were getting surplus military um, uh, equipment, um, yeah. tanks. Uh, you know, the LAPD or certain, you know, maybe certain West Coast agencies were getting surplus equipment, uh, and that would include, you know, gear from the military. Um, I think there's certainly a move uh, against that. I, I don't think that that uh, that psychology um, uh, of brute force is is helpful. You know, it, you know the, the so-called "us against them" mentality uh, that that brings to the, the to the fore. Um, you know, it, it's complicated. So, I mean, listen, training is is at the core of police work. There's just no question about that, and it cannot or it should not be left just to police agencies. I think academia. I think um, you know uh, other uh, other entities should be brought in uh, to um, to assist and to help make uh, police agencies better. What do you say to those who say defund the police? Um, well, defunding the police can have uh, several con- different connotations, right? I mean, if you're talking about, um, you know, taking away 10% of a police agency's um, funds and diverting it, toward the mental health community to hire professionals. So when you have an EDP, when you have an emotionally disturbed person call, uh, perhaps someone who's sort of a therapist or a counselor or psychologist or something can respond as well or to hire them. And perhaps they're even the lead at that, um, at that call until, um, until they relinquish it, then that, that, that's one thing. But, it, you know, that's one way of defunding the police, you know, uh, to a certain extent. But if you're talking about, um, you know, taking away uh, their uh, financial resources or other resources just for the sake of, of taking away their resources, um, you know, that's a different animal. You, you, you're going to see... Or, or, or I, I think studies have reflected that, um, you know, some of the uh, communities that are most heavily policed um, may or may not agree with uh, defunding the police in that sense where there's fewer police officers. Um, um, a lot of people don't want fewer police officers in their neighborhoods. They would like to see different police officers and police officers come with a, a, a different uh, perspective and, and disposition 
you know, as they police. But, the you know, um, people like to see police officers in many instances in their communities. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll read right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to The Spotlight. And we're back to The Spotlight with Mr. Randy Innes. And Randy, uh we were talking earlier about a little bit about the slogan, defund the police, and you were giving your talks. But uh, what, it, what does the term blue life matter means to you, you know, you know, which is like the opposite, you know? Sure. I mean, blue lives matter means a lot, man. I mean, uh, you know, I have, uh, I have a lot of friends uh, who are in the police uh, department. It, it does mean a lot. I mean, I don't like seeing police officers get hurt. Um, any more than anyone does. I mean, it's a serious job. And, you know, that, it's a, that's a tragedy uh, to our society, as far as I'm concerned, as a whole, when police officers are injured. Uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, and I don't know if you're going there, but I'll, I'll say this, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, as well. I mean, I'm, I'm not um, uh, offering that sentiment at the exclusion of other groups. You know, I, you know what you might say, all lives matter, but as the, in the sense that you're segmenting this out, and I know there's a uh, certainly a, in some areas a, a hesitancy toward uh, police efforts. Um, you know, uh, I certainly think their lives matter. Um, you know, uh, I thought my life mattered when I was uh, you know wearing the uniform and trying to do the best uh, that I could. Um, um, and I think the communities uh, in which the police police, their lives matter as well. Uh, so there's, um, you know, that's, 
that's my perspective uh, on it. Sure, they matter, but um, um, they don't matter to the exclusion of any other group. Randy, let's switch gears for a second. How did the NBA hire you? How did they hire me? Yeah, you know, um, I had an interesting career with the, the with the state police, and um, I, I think, um, you know, part of my career involved um, uh, doing executive protection of a governor for many years, or being in charge of his regional uh, area. Uh, I had um, I had gone to law school when I was uh, on the state police um, and got my, um, my law degree, I actually got two law degrees. So when uh, a friend uh, told me about this uh, position that was available and I looked into it, um, I, I, I looked into it from the perspective of my word, there's gonna be hundreds of police officers applying for this. Um, and so I, I took the position uh, and the approach to figuring out who was in charge of security for the NBA. And um, being in law enforcement for approximately 20 years, I figured there was only one or two degrees of separation between me meeting that individual. I knew someone who ultimately knew him and who knew, a, you know, and, and I met him. Um, I felt that my qualifications were strong, 20 years in law enforcement, a couple of law degrees. Um, I could uh, speak toward uh, executive protection and securing sites that I did with the governor, uh, not only domestically, but internationally. And uh, I made a, a presentation about that when I met him uh, with the job open. And he had already filled that job with a, a federal agent. Um, but he uh, said I had an interesting background and he was going to keep me in mind. And he sure did. Uh, um, and um, I was called for an interview maybe uh, six or eight months later for another position that had emerged. I'm sorry, myself and others. Uh, but three or four interviews up the chain and I was sitting in the commissioner's office, a man by the name of David Stern, God rest yeah. his soul. And I looked at that office on Fifth Avenue and out that window, and I started to think to myself, you know, I really got a shot at this. If I'm sitting in this man's office, you know, um, you know, this is this is going to, uh, you know, I've I got a shot at this. So uh, I, I think, um, you know, I had a, a really, really interesting background on the state police working in many areas, testifying as an expert. Uh, you know, um, and I, I think that was a, attracted to them as well as um, as well as uh, the ability to um, uh, articulate how I would keep their players and their employees and their staff and teams uh, safe. And, and so um, uh, they hired me. And interestingly enough, Alex, because you mentioned your dad, uh, you know, being in law enforcement in Puerto Rico, that was my first trip. They sent me to Puerto Rico within days of being hired. Oh, wow. Yeah, and the Miami Heat was heading uh, uh, to, to Puerto Rico uh, for an event and sent me out there three or four days early and with instructions to not screw it up, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I told him I had him. I had him. I'll, I'll take care of it. But I said, I don't speak Spanish, but I, I got this anyway. I'm not worried about it. 
Oh, wow. Wow. But, okay, so that is incredible. Uh, what was your duties out there? You know, what, I know your responsibility overall was security, but, like, what was the normal day of uh, with Randy? You know, and, uh, and was normal day for uh, with the NBA? Yeah, well, the, the, the you know, uh, responsibilities and duties were so varied. I mean, they're just just so many tentacles to that position. There are player investigations, uh, things that players do on the court and off the court. You know, um, I was charged with, with that, with interviewing them and putting um, uh, investigations together to present to the commissioner so he can, he can find them, you know, in consideration with basketball operations. Um, I led the, uh, the drug testing effort for the league. So, uh, you know, I was responsible for, uh, you know, if a player's uh, urine came up hot, interviewing him um, in conjunction with the union and, and, and overseeing that effort. Uh, the, 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 the NBA, um, and particularly NBA security, they have procedures and guidelines that they promulgate to all 29 arenas. There's 30 teams, there's 29 uh, arenas. Los Angeles has uh, two teams. Uh, and uh, we were responsible for ensuring that uh, all of the arenas and the teams um, adhere to the security procedures and guidelines. So there, there are times where we would, um, you know, do unannounced spot checks at, at the various arenas uh, around the country. We would bring people, uh, try and sneak them in with certain items, um, you know. Uh, and then there was the international component, um, which was uh, very, very uh, significant. That's where I went, uh, Mr. Thomas, um, you know, in the Philippines. <laughs> okay. A very, oh. very, a very, very robust uh, international um schedule that's really um, uh, undertaken during the preseason and during the offseason. So when, when, the, when the finals ended, you really started to travel, you know. Oh, wow. You know, that's where it really went up. So the, the responsibilities were very, and of course, you had to, you had to um, uh, concern yourself with the buildings, you know, with the NBA is headquartered in Manhattan and uh, also has a major office in and um, in New Jersey and, in, you know, offices in Africa and China and um, uh, so, so many different places uh, around the globe. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's a never-ending 24-7 event. And then when you get home at, you know, 7.30 or 8 o'clock, the games are starting. And when the games start, you're, you're on for that, too. There's a command center in New Jersey uh, with, you know, a multitude of screens up there and representatives, a big table and people from security, from basketball ops, from, uh, from, from so many different sections within the NBA that just really go to work at about six o'clock and they, their day doesn't end until one o'clock in the morning when all the games end. But, you know, you're subject to call when something happens during one of those games as well. They'll call you, hey, somebody ran on the court in, you know, Arena X, and then you know um, that's you're, you're up again and rolling. You know you don't have to go there, but you uh, the NBA hires um, the NBA security department hires 
uh, security representatives, uh, with typically police officers or ex-police officers, ex-FBI, ex-DEA, ex-local police, ex-state police, in every arena where there's a game. So these uh, gentlemen and ladies have to go to every game. They get tickets to entertain people. Um, you know, and so when something happens like that, you do have resources on the ground. Um, so, I mean, I could, trust me, I could go on with what, with what that uh, position in, in entails, but it's quite a, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a 24 seven type thing. I'd imagine. So where did you travel? And you must've thought about what, uh, this last week with, uh, Fans throwing things at Kyrie Irving and saying things to John Morant's father, uh, but this, you know, Washington yeah, you know, <laughs> you know uh, I was with the NBA for almost ten years, uh, almost, uh, and that's a that's a very long. Not, I'm not going to say that's a long night. That's a long week. Uh, <laughs> that, that's a long week. I mean. Uh, uh, for for a lot of people, both at at the league level and at the at the arena and at the, at the team level, um, you know that's uh, you know quite quite frankly, uh, you know my visceral reaction is, boy, I'm I'm glad I'm, I'm not involved, there. and I, you know, those, <laughs> I'm sort of glad those days are those days are over. But you know, it it, it brought back um, it brought back a lot of memories. You know, there's a fan code of conduct that um, that is uh, in place and you know the fans have to respect the players and the players have to respect the fans and uh, you've seen the sort of challenges uh, that occur where um, fans get out of hand you know the playoffs uh, bring out passions in everyone uh, and by the way that, that that fan code of conduct was certainly made more robust I mean, it had its oranges in significant part after the, the malice in the palace, you know, many years yeah. ago. Uh, that's where that was, uh, you know, brought to the, uh, uh, the forefront. But, you know, when, when, when somebody, you know, puts his hands on a player or throws things at a player, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's your game over. You know, I mean, there's, there's um, rules and regulations in place where they're, not only ejected, but they should be um, banned from the arena for a, a certain amount of time. Um, <laughs> I can tell you that in, in, in my era, that was not always the case, particularly if, if certain uh, behavior was engaged in by people who were courtside, you know, um, you know, that's where a lot of challenges come in. You know, money talks, they pay heck of a lot of money if they're a season ticket holder to be courtside. Uh, at an NBA game. And, and I might add uh, that the NBA is the only league uh, where you are just a few feet, inches in some cases, from the players. I mean, you could literally, if you're courtside, you could reach out and, and, and touch these people depending on, on the, um, you know, on the particular venue. And that brings in uh, a whole lot of safety and security efforts, a whole lot of responsibility uh, those people have to keep it together. Um, they stick their leg out and a coach can trip. You know, we've had conversations about that. I mean, it's, you know, you don't get that sort of close feel and touch in, in baseball or in football or even in hockey where they have glass arenas. So, you know, and, and the whole notion of when you're going, players are leaving the court and they're 
in what is known as the vomitory. That's where they go into the locker room and people are hanging over. And, and I, I mean, you know, the, the league encourages, quite frankly, that sort of interaction, you know, players high-fiving and all that. But then, you know, with alcohol and things of that nature and passions, it, it can go wrong. And people get pissed off at opposing teams and throw things from up above, and 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 that's what you have. So there's a, you know, um, there's there's a lot, certainly a lot of challenges. Um, you know, when that those sorts of things happen, you have to identify the person and their rules and regulations that are in place that should be happening. But you know, um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see in terms of of whether or not they, they, they follow the rules, but uh, it's a long day for a lot of, long day and a long week for a lot of people uh, in team sports, particularly the NBA when that happens, trust me. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to the Spotlight. And we're back with the Spotlight with Mr. Randy Ennis. And Randy, you, you're, you mentioned a little bit about the, you know, Mally's at the Palace. Uh, what policies did the NBA put in place to avoid all another that like that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the malice at the Palace uh, occurred right before I, I was hired at the NBA, you know, uh, right before them. And, um, you know, the, the, during that era, and I caught the tail end of that era, I mean, or the middle of it, actually. During that era, it was a different sort of um, mindset. The league, they felt was, uh, you know, really, really getting uh beat up with with imagery uh, and so and then this happened and then it just exacerbated what they felt were um uh you know negative uh, events that were that was impacting the branding uh the, the the brand so 
you know, that's, I think, in significant part where the fan code of conduct was born uh, to a significant degree or, or certainly made in, uh, exponentially more robust. Um, you know, as I said, uh, you know, fans have to respect the players and players have to respect the fans. And they, that was born out of that. And then there was a dress code uh, that was put into effect at that point. You know, you couldn't, you know, players were into the, the you know, uh, you know, the culture and, and hip hop and they would uh, show up with, uh, um, you know, dressed a certain way, perhaps things on their head, do rags and all that. The league, the league said, uh, you know, they, they, they um, instituted a dress code and uh, started fining players. You know, you couldn't you couldn't come to a game, uh, you know, in, in a warm-up suit or something like that. I mean, you had to have a, you know, uh, you had to dress a certain way. You could have dream, jeans, but they were dress jeans, and you had to watch your foot gear and all of that stuff that was not associated with, um, uh, with a certain degree of professionalism to, to a, was, was banned. So the dress uh, code, the fan code of conduct, those were, those were um, uh, policies that were born uh, from the malice, you know, in the, in the palace. And, and it took a little while. Uh, people got fined a little bit, players, and then they started catching on, and then it became a contest, man, you know, who could dress the best. And, uh, you know, of course, today it's an, it's an, it's an entirely – uh, different uh, league, you know, I mean, they, there's, a, there's a sophistication, you know, people don't want to lose, the, people don't want to get suspended and lose that day's pay or, or, or not be um, uh, attractive to endorsements, you know, because of uh, other things. I think there's a lot more sensitivity to that and a lot more, uh, you know, players want to make extra money by, you know, uh, being attractive to sponsors and, and things of that nature. So, yeah, a lot came out of that malice in the palace, man. And the, the league's, um, you know, the league uh, grew and, and became stronger in many ways uh, as a result of that. But that, you know, no one forgets that. And everyone <laughs> harken back to that that incident with, uh, you know, I think it was Ron Artest was laying on the score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, and I think it was police officer, you know, with, with – can of um, mace out or, you know, or, or something in his hand. I mean, it was just an inch. I missed that, but not, not by much. <laughs> Go ahead. So when you traveled overseas, how did you guys work with foreign police officers and foreign governments to keep the players safe? Well, you know, there was a, there was a, 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 a protocol in, in place. We would, we would certainly, uh, do advanced trips, mm-hmm. and we would um, meet with the State Department, meet with the ambassador's office, you know. And um, uh, when I would meet with the uh, uh, State Department mm-hmm. officials there, and particularly their uh, security apparatus, uh, we would have discussions about um, uh, certainly introduce ourselves, let them know that, that, you know, in a few months we're coming with some teams. Um, we would um, uh, typically uh, deal with the, the Overseas Security Advisory Council, OSAC, um, deal with various intelligence groups, um, and then you put, uh, you, you monitor it for several months, 
uh, heading in. And then, um, you know, there's a lot that goes on before that team gets there. You know, you're advancing places where you're going to eat. You have to have a good sense of your arena. Um, you know, there are countries that don't have an NBA style arena. Um, in some cases, um, you know, you'll decide not to go there. Uh, but in most cases, you have to um, train and adapt the security apparatus that's present there uh, to NBA league standards. And that's, that's uh, you know, that's a Herculean effort. That's, and that's challenging. Uh, we got, we, you know, as, as the years uh, went by, we became a little bit more sophisticated in terms of our approach to it. We would start bringing the arena security directors in. Uh, from from our domestic arenas yeah. to go in there and handle that. And at one point, we were we were sort of bringing in some assets to handle it, but why not bring in the people that do it all the time? And um, that became uh, a policy and procedure. And 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 in some cases, arena security directors would move on, and you know they would change. But when they moved on, we would say, hey, you know, we're going to China in a couple of years. We know you're not handling that arena, uh, you know, but why don't you take a trip with us? And we, you know, we'd bring them on and, and as independent contractors. And so th- th- there's so much, and we would lean on, um, you know, uh, our, our state department and things like that to, uh, for guidance. Um, they're, they're very reserved in what they can advise you. They don't want to get involved to a certain degree of saying this security company or that security company or anything like that. But but we would look at who was, you know, the sort of assets that were being used mm-hmm. over there. Um, and uh, we would act, uh, you know, accordingly. It wasn't a question of, um, you know, uh, of whether or not, you know, it was more a question of who we should hire mm-hmm. than the, the resources. The resources were there and, uh, you know, but it's, it, it's, it's challenging, you know. Well, man, I, Alex didn't serve in Asia, so he doesn't know how we had all the, you know, the NBA cheerleaders come for July 4th, retired players come in, everybody from Oscar Robinson to Dennis Rodman. Then we'd have the teams, Indiana and Houston and the whole ESPN crew and former players, you know, uh, current players. It was amazing. It wasn't a small thing, Al. It was like, you know, when the secretary travels, the president travels with all the dignitaries. And, you know, it, it was really, it, it's not an easy thing for them to do. No, he's right. It, it really is. Um, you know, it's almost, it's almost in many ways like a, like a presidential visit. But the, the, the problem is, you know, <laughs> I say problem, I say that in quotes, because I've, I've worked several presidential details. Mm. The issue is when you have a team coming in, you know, you got 15 presidents on, <laughs> on one team. And then, you're, you know, when the other team comes in, you got 30 of them. Uh, and, you know, uh, so everybody's, everybody's important. It's not just to focus on one, mm. one man or the vice president or first lady. It's, it's, it's just quite a, a focus on, on you know, the players. And then you have the coaching staff. And then when you do these trips, um, the team invariably, they bring their families so what should be almost a 50 or a 60 person contingent might blow into 150 people on one side. And if you're in the uh, part of the security apparatus, um, you're just responsible for, 
for everyone. So that when when you know when the coach's second cousin twice removed loses their passport, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, a problem. You know, you're there really for the players, but you own it all. You know, these are people that, in your humble opinion, maybe shouldn't have even been on the trip. You know, yeah, um, I um, but you, but but you own the whole. You own the whole uh, contingent, uh, so uh, very. Yeah, I don't envy. I don't envy you. I did a couple of presidential visits, and I tell you that it's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's a it's it's a Herculean effort. Well, let let me go now to why did you decide to attend law school, Randy? Oh, law school. Well. Um, you know, early on in my career, um, I was involved in uh, a lot of special details. And in, 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 in those days, it was around the war on drugs. And, um, you know, I was a young person of color. I was removed from the road um, and uh, invited to do some undercover work. Uh, in those days, you know, I was a young, maybe 20-something-year-old, 24, whatever. And, and, and then you start doing that type of work. And then, they, you know, in, in police agencies, um, it leads to, to, to different things. Uh, um, start working with the feds, uh, the FBI, the DEA. Um, and in some of these major cartels, Um, I was involved in, in, in a trial or trials where you had a bevy of attorneys uh, cross-examining you uh, based on the, the efforts you, you did. And it really opened up my eyes to what uh, attorneys uh, um, did, um, their level of expertise, and some of them who weren't all that good, quite frankly. <laughs> you know. And I, I said to myself... Um, I could, I could do that. You know, I, I can do that. And I, I didn't want to practice law, to be perfectly honest with you. But uh, I wanted to do something after the state police um, where, um, you know, I can get a great job. And I was looking for a non-traditional legal career that, you know, using your law degree to get a great job in some other in some other sector. Well, um, that actually happened when I got hired by the NBA, quite frankly, you know. So I did 20, I think, uh, almost, uh, I did 22 years with the state police, and I did a lot of interesting work there and testified in a, as an expert, and then uh, transitioned using some of those skill sets uh, to the NBA. To the NBA. Um, and in those days, I mean, I felt there was no challenge I couldn't handle. You know, I was, I was young, kind of relatively young, early 40s, and I know that's not young to many of you, but... Um, uh, armed with a couple of law degrees in 21 years in, in law enforcement, and now I'm going to travel international. I wasn't worried about anything. But that's how I got there. And then uh, when, when the NBA, uh, after uh, almost 10 years there, and it's time to move on, um, you know, I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do now? Well, I still have this law degree, which I then had for probably close to 20 years. I, I went to law school uh, when I was in my 11th year on the state police um, and, and New York State Police had a 20-year retirement at the time. I'm not sure what it is now. Um, so um, 
you know, I had been uh, a lawyer for quite some time by the time I had left the NBA. Uh, and, you know, I said, well, you know, maybe I'll dust this off and I'll try this. This is my third career. Um, you know, I still got, uh, I still enjoy working and, and it's been, it's been interesting. It's been, actually, it's been quite fun. Now you're working for yourself. You've got to build a brand. You've got to build a business and clientele. Um, you know, you guys know about that. I mean, it's, it's a new set of challenges and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Well, look, tell us who are your favorite NBA players? Make Alex upset. <laughs> well, you're not going to like this answer, Harry. You're not. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I'm going to give the answer that I did when I was on the league. Uh, you know, I have you know, 450 favorite NBA players. Yeah. You know, what I used to say. Uh, but in all seriousness, in all seriousness um, once I departed from the league, um, I... I haven't really watched sports all that much because whether you watch football or baseball or basketball, at least from my perspective, it constantly brings me back to this gut-wrenching aspect of security. You know what I mean? I'm looking at the people that are courtside who are inside. You can't be a fan. Yeah, I, I, I can't be, I'm, they're inside the security perimeter. So, you know, <laughs> I, you know I'm thinking, you know, um, uh, you know I, I, and so, you know, I learned about who was in the, in the Super Bowl days before the, the, the major game. Um, you know, ha- having said that, um, um, you know, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about certain players who were there uh, when I when I was there, and 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 they're still carrying themselves very well. Um, you know, some of the major guys. Um, you know, you don't hear about them with any problems. They're, they're now involved in social issues. Um, you know, and they're, you know, they're 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 towing the line. It's not just about them. They, they realize that they have a broader message and perspective that they can bring, and how they can impact minds and communities and all that. And I'm, I'm the biggest fans of those guys, you know, uh, who, who do things positive that are uh, off the court. You know, that, that those are my my biggest guys. And, and I, hey, I, I, But, Randy, when we were kids, we didn't, we didn't, the Knicks weren't on TV. We used to have to listen to Mob Albert say yes by the radio. Right? <laughs> right. That's right. You, Mob Albert would say yes. We'd be on the radio. There was no TV. That's he true. should be a diplomat. So I know, man. So I see that, but that's okay. Hey, uh, uh, Randy, thank you so much for being our guest. We have learned a lot about uh, law enforcement, the challenges of the NBA, giving back, and you are clearly a role model for youth around the world. And when they question um, law enforcement, they can see how important it is. Alex. Randy, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate and uh, hope to meet you soon in person. Yes, yes. And if I might say uh, a couple of parting things. One, I thank you both, uh, Harry and Alex, for, for inviting me. It's absolutely my pleasure. And, and for any anybody that might be listening out there who happens to be youth, I don't know there's 
Um, it, it's not all wine and roses out there. I will tell you that as a teen growing up in the Bronx, I had challenges with the police. I had handcuffs put on me. I was uh, taken into custody. So I, I, want, I want you to understand that uh, despite what can happen uh, or what might happen, um, you know, you can be anything you want to be, you know. So, you know, it, it doesn't always start out as, as, as things going where I had my share of challenges as a youth, believe me. And, uh, you know, by age 21, I was on the state police. And by the time I left it, I had two law degrees. So please do not give up. If there's a message that I want to extend, it's that um, you have the right and you have the uh, ability to be anything you want to be, you know, whether or not you are the first in your class or anything like that. When I, when I was a, a teenager, I couldn't dream of being an attorney. And so, you know, as long as you take chances in yourself, um, and, and things are opened up to you, uh, that, that can be the catalyst that makes you think bigger. And if you're not, if your dreams aren't scaring you, you're not dreaming big enough. And thank that, you. All right. Thank that you. That was the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Be sure to join Chief Alex Morales and Ambassador Harry Thomas again on the Voice America Variety Channel.